And I'm so thrilled to introduce Dr. John Walvoord. Give him a big hand. Last evening, we heard a most remarkable summary of world events and situations, all of which added up to one bottom line, that our civilization is sitting on a time bomb of atomic proportions that could go off at any time. From a biblical and theological point of view, this becomes very demanding of our thinking because I believe the Bible teaches that the rapture of the church is going to take place before these world-shaking events are fulfilled. And if the world is in the situation as it is tonight and doesn't take a great deal of insight or expertise to know that we're in a lot of trouble all over the world and it could erupt almost anywhere, then the rapture of the church could be very near. I don't think there ever was a time in the history of the church when believers in Christ had more right and information that would lead them to the conclusion that Christ could come any day. I couldn't help but think about this last evening. I wondered if we'd get through this conference. <laughs> I'd always dreamed that if the rapture occurred, I'd be preaching, and suddenly you'd get the point, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, tonight we're facing a problem, however, that in biblical interpretation there's a lot of people that don't agree with us. And uh, often the very fact that there are so many that disagree with us uh, keeps some people from saying, well, how do you know you're right? How do you know that the rapture is first? Well, I've been at this for more than 50 years now, and a lot of people don't realize that while there are many people that disagree with us, there is no uniformity among those who differ with us. There is at least a dozen different points of view on this, each of which is mutually destructive of the other views. Somebody has to be wrong. And the question is what does the Bible teach? Tonight I'd like to introduce this subject. As some of you know who have studied it, it's what we call the pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, that the rapture occurs before the predicted terrible events that are going to take place in the world prior to the second coming of Christ to set up his kingdom. And there are various views. I'm not going to go into all of them. There's a partial rapture view. Not many follow this. The idea that when the rapture occurs, only spiritual Christians will be raptured, and the others have to wait until they get spiritual enough, then they're going to be raptured later. It's interesting to me that those that hold that view always think they're going in the first contingent. <laughs> then there's the so-called mid-tribulationists that think that the rapture is going to occur in the middle of that last seven-year predicted period. And then there's a host of variations on what we call post-tribulationism. Now, traditionally, uh, before World War II, all the post-tribulational books would say 
this whole question is out of pocket because we're already in the tribulation. Now, of course, in order to take that statement as true, you have to ignore what the Bible teaches. The Bible calls the last three and a half years before the second coming the great tribulation. And it specifically says that it's a time period that's greater than any trouble period that ever occurred before or ever follows. In other words, the troubles we're having today, great as they may be, are not the troubles of the great tribulation. As you get into the scriptures, you discover there's some very specific things that are going to handle, are going to happen in the great tribulation. And so the traditional view before World War II was that the tribulation was already passed in the sufferings of the human race up till now. And then when Christ came from heaven to the earth, in his second coming, the earth, the, the church would rise from the earth, meet him in the air, and then make a U-turn and come back with him to the earth. And that was their standard view. The trouble is, there's no scripture at all. Where is that in the Bible? Look up every passage on the second coming of Christ. You'll never find a rapture mentioned. It's created out of whole cloth. Well, when World War II occurred and the atomic bomb was discovered and the possibility of millions of people being killed overnight shook the world, a realism grew in. And the post-tribulational view, that is the majority of them, made a U-turn. And they said, well, there is tribulation ahead. But then they varied a great deal as to how much tribulation you know. And they watered it down. And their main idea was that our God is able to protect a person through this time of trouble and the church will be carried through this period without difficulty. The trouble is, that is specifically contradicted in the book of Revelation. And in the great tribulation, being a Christian, you're more liable to be killed than a non-Christian because you're under uh, the law. Unless you worship the world ruler, you're going to be executed. And then you have all the other natural catastrophes, war, pestilence, stars falling, famine, you name it, that afflict everybody. So the chances of a Christian or the church getting through this period is pretty remote. Now, a lot of people approach this rather immediately, but I like to look at it from the perspective of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament doesn't talk about a rapture, but it does talk about the first and second coming of Christ. And that could take uh, several evenings to explore if you went through all the texts on it. But I think most of us understand that the Old Testament predicted the first coming of Christ, that he would be born of a virgin, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd be the great prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, that he'd perform the miracles and heal the blind and the sick and the lame, and be a great leader a God with us, Emmanuel, God in human flesh and, and nature. And uh, that predicted that he would be born and live. It also predicted his death. And in Isaiah 52, 53, we have the record of the fact that the Messiah, when he came, would die for the sins of the world. Psalm 24, another one. And uh, the, many passages in the Old Testament Anticipate his death. Then alongside this are passages on his second coming. 
He's going to come from heaven to the earth. Daniel speaks of this in Daniel 7. And uh, many other passages refer to his activities after his return. He's going to reign over the whole world. Psalm 72 is a remarkable summary of how every nation is going to be under his sway. Isaiah 11 speaks of his righteous judgment and how at the time of his second coming he's going to regather Israel back to their ancient land and restore them to their prominence in God's work and plan. And then we have the covenant with David that his posterity would sit upon the throne forever. And, of course, that demanded something more than just an ordinary person. He'd have to be a person not only was human, that is, a literal descendant of David, but he'd also have to be a resurrected person. Otherwise, he couldn't live on the throne forever. And a lot of scholars recognize that Christ is that person. So all these things are found in the Old Testament. But here's the remarkable point. Nobody, nobody understood that there were two comings in the Old Testament. The Jewish rabbis studied this, and we learn in First Peter, the first chapter, that they wrestled with this. How could the same Messiah be a suffering, dying Messiah and a glorious reigning Messiah? And they tried to find some answer to that. <clears throat> One answer, of course, was there might be two Messiahs. Never occurred to them. It could happen to the same person. And then there are others that said, well, the passages on suffering don't refer to the person, they refer to the nation Israel. And the passages about glory speak of the fact when the Messiah comes, he's going to deliver Israel from their trouble. And so they adopted that. As far as I can tell, nobody in the Old Testament or in the Gospel period had the slightest idea that there were two comings of Christ, except Christ himself, of course. And it's remarkable that God guided what the writers of the Old Testament wrote so they didn't contradict it, even though they didn't understand it. And Christ in his public ministry didn't contradict it either. Now, the disciples were following Christ because they thought he was going to bring in a glorious kingdom. After all, he told them that sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And they left their homes and their families for three and a half years and wandered all over Israel with Christ, anticipating that they had a glorious future. But as time wore on, they didn't see any progress. And the early enthusiasm that, is, that Christ received started to dissipate, and people started to turn away. They knew that the rulers of the Jews would love to kill Jesus. They didn't fit in at all with the glorious picture they'd anticipated. And so after three or more years, they began to become disillusioned, and Judas Iscariot particularly wondered, he said, Have I made a mistake? And then he was approached by the rulers of the Jews, and he was asked to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas thought, well, if he's the Messiah, they won't be able to hurt him, and I'll have 30 pieces of silver. If he isn't the Messiah, what have I lost? It's the same argument people follow when they sin, you know. They're going to get something otherwise they'd be deprived of. And so he took it, and of course he lost everything, including his life. Tragic thing. I saw the Passion play in Europe, and I think the most touching scene was Judas, under the guilt of his conscience, no forgiveness, no way out, finally taking his life. There is nothing more hopeless 
than to have unforgiven sin. You and I don't know anything about that. We know a gracious God who died on the cross for our sins, Jesus Christ, and he paid the price and he's able to forgive our sins and to redeem us from spiritual death and promise us eternal life and to be with him forever. Not because we deserve it, but because he died in our place and bore our judgment. We know forgiveness. And that's wonderful to realize that you're the object of the grace of God. It isn't a question of what you deserve. It isn't a question of what you earn or you attain. He's promised to bless you even if you don't deserve it. And who deserves it? You see, we're in a totally different situation. Well, the disciples were particularly perturbed when Christ gathered with his disciples, as recorded in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And they observed the Passover, the record of how God triumphed with the children of Israel in Egypt when the firstborn of the Egyptians died, and when the blood on the doorpost in the home of the Israelites meant that there was no one that died there. And the result, of course, was the exodus and the ultimate return to the land. They celebrated the Passover and incidentally instituted the Lord's Supper because Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. And that same night, Christ told them, one of your number is going to deny me. And they didn't have the slightest idea who it was. Judas has covered his tracks very well. And then Peter protested. He said, Lord, I'll die for you. And he meant it. But he didn't know Peter very well. And Christ said, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And then he told them he was going to leave them and he wasn't, they couldn't follow him. This devastated them. They had followed him because they thought he was going to bring in a kingdom on earth. They didn't understand that that had related to his second coming, not his first. And then we have John 14, that great chapter, one of my favorites. On how to face anxiety, let not your heart be troubled. And he gives us reason after reason why. We don't need to be troubled, even though we live in a troubled world. You know, the very first reason he gave them was that he's going to come to take them to heaven. The first revelation of the rapture of the church. Now, the disciples were in no position to understand this. I know there are scholars that say that they understood it. They didn't. There's not a single scrap of Scripture that indicates that they understood the rapture. How could they understand the rapture when they didn't know the difference between the first and second coming? You see, they they were confused. And it wasn't until later when Paul uh, was saved on the road to Damascus and then had further instruction and revelation from God concerning the grace of God and the salvation by faith and the church, the body of Christ, and then the rapture of the church. And when he ministered, as he did in the mission field, he would preach that Christ died for our sins and rose again, the gospel message that leads us all to salvation in Christ. And then he would go right alongside this with the truth, he's coming again to take us to heaven. That's the rapture or the snatching up of the church. So it wasn't until later, when we get to the Thessalonian epistles, that we have an exposition of this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. would merit their study the rest of the evening. We studied this morning in the Institute, but it's a marvelous summary 
of the wonderful fact that Christ is coming. When he comes, he's going to command every Christian who has died to be resurrected and every Christian who's living to be instantly transformed. They're going to meet him in the air. And then, as promised in John 14, he's going to take him to heaven, to the Father's house. And that's where they're going to be while the great troubles on earth erupt that they leave behind. Now, the question is, does this event occur before or after the tribulation? Some years ago, quite a few years now, I wrote the so-called rapture question, and I discussed all this from a theological point of view and gave all the theological arguments. It ends up with 50 reasons why I'm a pre-tribulationist. Some of them are important, some of them aren't. But uh, some of them have never been answered by those that oppose us. They just don't know how to answer it. And then, about 10 years ago or more now, I decided to add another 100 pages because some people don't necessarily think theologically, and I thought they would get more out of it if I simply expounded the Bible. So I went to the Bible, starting with Matthew 13, took up every passage that had any bearings on the subject, right on through the book of Revelation, and asked the question all the way through, what does this passage teach Is it a pre-tribulational view, a mid-tribulational view, or a post-tribulational view, or one of the several post-tribulational views? And I I couldn't find any evidence for anything except a pre-tribulation view. Now, let's begin with the rapture itself. How does Paul present this to the Thessalonians? He presented it to them as an imminent event. They were expecting it any time, and that's what Paul did. Until the Lord told him he was going to be beheaded and be executed, he was looking for it. He didn't know when, but he was anticipating the coming of the Lord. And uh, accordingly, the uh, scriptures record their concerns. Now, between First uh, and Second Thessalonians, uh, rather before he wrote First Thessalonians. Uh, Paul had sent Timothy back to see how this struggling band of Christians were living. Now, he'd only had three weeks of ministry there, according to Acts 17. Some think he was there much longer, but there's no scriptural support for that. It's amazing what he communicated in those three weeks and how souls were led to Christ, both saved and unsaved. But the Thessalonians, some of them rejected his message and thought he was an apostate. And they hated him to the point where they were going to kill him. And he thought it best to leave. And in the Bible, sometimes it's God's will for Christians to be martyred. There's been thousands of martyrs in the 20th century. And in other times, he wants them to live. And in the case of Paul, he had a lot of work for him to do yet. He hadn't written any of his epistles and a lot of missionary work. So he was to be a martyr, but much later in his life. And so he sent Timothy back to see how they're getting along. And since Paul had left, some of that little band of Christians had died. You know, you never know. I've seen people in church on Sunday morning and their funeral was held before the following Sunday. In other words, death can come so quickly. There's 101 things that can cause instant death. It's amazing we live at all. (laughs) Uh, If it wasn't for the good Lord, I don't think we would. But the point is that uh, you should be ready. And uh, they had a question They said, now, if the Lord comes for us, obviously, at any moment, what about Christians who had died? Would they have to 
wait for them till some future time. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what they had in mind, but, of course, as we reconstruct it, the second coming of Christ was later. There will be a resurrection then. They might have thought they'd have to wait until his formal second coming to the earth. We don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But Timothy couldn't answer their question, so he brought it to Paul along with other questions. And you can imagine if you had only heard the gospel for three weeks, you'd have a few questions too, wouldn't you? And some people go to church all their life and still have a lot of questions. And so Paul was overjoyed because the report indicated they were standing true to the faith. And he sent back what we call First Thessalonians. And every chapter speaks of the rapture. It was just part of his message. And then in, John, in the fourth chapter, 13 to 18, he expounds exactly what's going to happen. That every Christian, living or dead, is going to be taken out of the world and taken to heaven. Now the question as to when that's going to occur is not just a modern idea. That is right from the start. And we learn in 1 Thessalonians 5, that he writes, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. In other words, the, the uh, particular time or the general time, he said, I don't need to write you because you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Now, what is this day of the Lord? Well, it's amazing to me how Bible scholars will try to analyze that without taking the time to look it up. It's a, cur- it's a phrase that occurs many times in the Old Testament. And the day of the Lord is always a period where God deals in direct judgment in the world. Read the book of Joel, for instance, or some of the other minor prophets. It will describe how God dealt with Israel, perhaps bringing a famine or an invader or some other problem and judge them because they'd wandered from God, the idea being to chasten them and bring them back to proper worship and obedience. And these periods of time, many days in some case, were called the day of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament also anticipates that there'll be the greatest day of the Lord in history just before the second coming. So that's what he's talking about here. He says, you know that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, how does a thief come? Does he send his card and say, I'm coming? No. (laughs) He comes unexpectedly. Now, I think that's going to be true for everybody, but especially for the unsaved, they don't expect it at all. And so he goes on to say, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, I think it's helpful to reconstruct the end-time events as best we can, and I'm not saying that this is inspired, but it's what I think the Scriptures support. There's a certain series of events, and sometimes prophetic teachers err because they get things out of order. But there's a cause-and-effect relationship. First of all, the rapture occurs... Then we believe that at the time of the rapture, there's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire, and we'll get into that a little bit later, in the form of ten nations banding together, and they're going to be banded together on a friendly basis, willing basis. But then a ruler is going to emerge that's going to conquer three of those ten countries, and then all ten, and he's going to become their dictator. Now, he is the one, he's the man of destiny. He's the ultimate antichrist, the person that's going to be the world ruler. But he begins by ruling over these ten nations. 
Now, when he gets to that position of power, he'll be the strongest political leader in the whole area, particularly Europe and the Mediterranean. And he's going to impose a seven-year peace treaty on Israel. It's not going to be negotiated. He's going to say, this is it, from superior power. And it's predicted in Daniel 9.27 as a seven-year period divided into two parts. The first half is a period of relative peace. He's the protector of Israel. Now, personally, I believe in that time, there'll be the invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's a lot of different places where it's put. But it comes at a time of peace, and Israel doesn't have peace very often. (laughs) They don't have it today. It comes at a time of peace when they're not expecting an invasion, and, of course, they are expecting one today. And uh, it's going to be because they think this ruler is going to protect them. Now, Ezekiel 38-39 is a very difficult passage, a lot of details to it that are hard to explain, perhaps, but the main idea is clear. It's going to be six nations, five of whom are named, and the sixth is declared to be a country from the far north of Israel. Well, the Soviet Union or the states of the Soviet Union are only 300 miles north. And while they said now that the Soviet Union is disbanded, uh, this won't be fulfilled, on the contrary, it's more likely to be fulfilled than ever because some of these states are 70 to 80 percent Muslim. They'd love to attack Israel because in their religion, if they get killed in a war against Israel, they go to heaven. You can't fight a nation like that very well. And so they're going to come down and attack Israel from the north. Now, I take it's a time when Israel's at peace. And God intervenes. There's no time for an army to stand against them. But by a series of catastrophes that are detailed in Ezekiel 30 and 39, the entire army is wiped out. And it takes months just to bury the dead. Now, whether atomic weapons are used, we don't know. But in any case, they are killed by flood and by fire from heaven and for other reasons. Uh, No opposing army, but the army is just wiped out. Now, the point is that this invasion is against the ten ruler nation. It's a challenge of this ruler who is supposed to be protecting Israel. And the fact that the invaders are wiped out leaves him in a more strategic position of power than ever. And that leads to what happens in the middle of that last seven years. He decides to proclaim himself dictator over the whole world. And overnight, we have a world empire and no country apparently is strong enough to stand against him. Now, it may be because he controls all the oil of the Middle East. It may be through satanic deception that they do it. But the scriptures make it clear that he doesn't fight a war to get it. So overnight, he becomes a world ruler. And then we also learn his true character. Instead of keeping his covenant with Israel, he breaks it and becomes their persecutor, much like Hitler. And he's, it turns out that he's an atheist. Daniel 11 says he doesn't regard the God of his fathers. And the word God there is not Jehovah, the God of Israel, but Elohim, the general word for God, any God, it says. Regardless of who the God is, he totally disregards it because he considers himself God and demands that everybody worship him. And he allies himself with Satan so that when you worship him, you worship Satan as well, much like we do when we worship the Father, we worship Christ and vice versa. In other words, it's all part of the same package. And so there follows the three and a half years, that the second half of that seven years, 
that leads up to the second coming of Christ. Toward its end, because of all the catastrophes that God brings upon the world, as well as the terrible persecutions of the world ruler, uh, the world gets discontent with their ruler that they thought was going to bring them into the land of peace and plenty. And a great world war erupts. And it's called Armageddon, which is a geographic location, the Mount of Megiddo in northern Israel. And apparently the armies are deployed for all up and down for a couple hundred miles between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates River. And millions of men are involved. It's a ter- most uh, uh, dynamic world war we've ever seen. And this goes on the last few months with the armies seesawing back and forth. Read Daniel 11 about this. And then while this war is still underway, suddenly the heavens break open with the glory of the second coming of Christ. And the question is, why does Satan, who had put this world government together, now break it apart? And the reason is he wants all the military might of the world there to fight the army from heaven. But it's so futile. The second coming, Christ speaks the word, the sword out of his mouth, and this immense army with its millions of men are instantly killed along with their beasts. And Christ begins the series of judgments and steps that leads to the establishment of the millennial kingdom. Now think back over what I said. You realize if the rapture occurs, there's going to be three periods of time. First, a period of preparation. We don't know how long it's going to be. It may be short. Personally, I think it's only going to be a few years, but it could be longer. In that period, if the ten-nation group hasn't been formed before the rapture, the Bible isn't clear whether it's just before or just after, uh, that's going to have to be formed. Then the ruler is going to have to emerge and gain control of it in that period of time. It could be very rapid. But then when he end, begins that seven-year period, we have a specific time factor, something we don't always have in prophecy. And that first half of the seven years is relatively a time of peace. You have Preparation, before that, after the rapture, then peace, then persecution, three Ps, and then the second coming of Christ. Now, the question is whether the church goes through all or part of this. And, of course, those that are the mid-tribulationists think it's going to be at the middle of the week, before the great tribulation. There's another view that's rather recent called the pre-wrath rapture, and... uh, they picture the raptures occurring about the 15th or 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. The trouble is there's no rapture there. <laughs> but they argue that everything before that is not rapture, is not wrath of God. And, of course, they're totally wrong. It begins way back in chapter 6. And then there's those who are traditional post-tribulationists that figure that it has to be somewhere in connection with the second coming of Christ. And so they have these various views. Now, what's the Scripture teach? Well, if the Scriptures do not anywhere warn the church that they have to go through the tribulation, I think you have a strong argument for the pre-tribulational view. Try to find a passage. There isn't any such. And then try to study these three periods, the period of preparation, the period of peace, and the period of persecution, and try to find the church in it. It's not there. It has no reference to the church. And we have the message of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, but then as you get into the sequence of the end time, no mention of the church until you get to chapter 19, and then you have the church mentioned as the bride of Christ. And, of course, he's coming back. she's coming back with him from heaven. And so we don't find the rapture anywhere there. Now, as you go through the Bible, let's take up some of the passages that teach this.
begin with Matthew 13. Now, most uh, post-tribulationists don't bother with this because it isn't a good argument. But you remember Christ in this chapter is uh, making the Jews understand the kingdom that's going to be between his first and second comings. It's what we call the inter-advent kingdom. The Old Testament doesn't talk about this. So this is new revelation, and he's explaining to them that while the literal millennium is going to be postponed till after this period, there is a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom from heaven or a kingdom of God that exists in this present age. And so he describes this. And then he describes how at the end of the inter-advent age there will be a judgment of this kingdom and that the tares will be, uh, uh, the wheat and the tares will be separated, the tares representing uh, the professing Christian, not a real one. He looks like wheat until the harvest and then he's sorted out. And then at the end of the chapter you have the parable of the net with the fish in it, you know, and the good and bad fish and the good fish are taken out uh, and the bad fish are discarded. And the order isn't the same. And they point out, therefore, this must be the rapture. The point is that this is not the rapture at all. There's no rapture in this chapter. There's no resurrection. There's no translation of living Christians. It's talking about the second coming. And there's going to be a series of judgments. Some taking out the wicked first, some taking out the wicked later. And you have, as you read the account of what's happening at the second coming, first of all, the army is destroyed. And then you have God judging Israel, who's regathered and purging out the rebels. And then you have the judgment of the nations, where the goats are purged out. There's a series of judgments, some of them preceding and some of them following the second coming. So we have that in the scriptures. And so Matthew 13 just doesn't have any point. It doesn't support the post-tribulational view. Now, practically all post-tribulationists, Go to Matthew 24. Sometimes even pre-tribulations try to find the rapture here. And I take it the rapture's not here. Now, the disciples had been concerned about the fact that Christ wasn't bringing in the kingdom. And so they asked the question, especially when he said the temple was going to be destroyed, and that didn't fit their picture of the future at all. And, uh, and they come to him and ask him, uh, uh, when's this, when are you going to come? Verse, verse 3, And now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will all these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple. And uh, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now they meant by his coming, his coming into his kingdom. I don't think they understood the first and second coming. But his coming as his king of kings and lord of lords. And the end of the age. Now the second and third question are the same question. And uh, because it ends at the same time. And Christ answers this question. Now, you notice he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about bringing his kingdom to earth. And he points out all the things that are going to happen. Now, scholars differ as to where the breaks come in this chapter. I take it that we have, first of all, what we'd call general signs. You know, I've driven from Dallas to Los Angeles. And as you go along, you see signs and you know you're getting closer one wag one time put a city of Los Angeles sign just outside of Fort Worth. but <laughs> We knew it was fictitious. But as you move along, you get signs, you realize where you are on the map, and you get closer and closer. But finally, you get to Los Angeles, and there it says, City of Los Angeles. Then you know you've arrived. That's the sign at the end of the road. Now, in Matthew 24, up to verse 14, 
I take it we have general signs. Some make the break at verse 8, and some make it all the great tribulation. But I take it up to verse 14, there's not any clear indication. These are things that are happening now. Wars, rumors of wars, uh, martyrdom, uh, all these things that have characterized the last 1900 years. But then in verse 15 and following, we have the sign of the second coming. In specific contrast to the general sign, you have the specific sign. And it goes on to say that when the specific sign occurs, that the abomination of desolation is going to take place. You see, at the middle of that seven-year period when the world ruler takes over, he stops the sacrifice that had been established by the Jews in the temple, which is yet to be built, by the way, and he takes over the temple and makes it a place of worship of himself, sets up a statue and all that, and uh, this is an abomination to God. And he says that's going to happen on a given day, and it's going to be a specific sign of the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And he tells us, the people there, that when that takes place, they should immediately run to the mountains of Israel and get away, because they're going to try to capture every Jew and put them to death, just like they did in Germany. And Zechariah 13.8 tells a sad story that two out of three are going to be caught and killed. A third are going to escape. And then he tells them that those that are in the field should not even go back to the house to get their clothes. And they should leave immediately if they're on the top of their house, if it's a flat house. They should take the exterior stairway, not even go through the interior of the house to pick up anything. It's going to be especially difficult for women that are pregnant or women that have small children. And he said, pray your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, because that's the first in the winter. It's on very inclement weather on the Sabbath, because then they know they're escaping. No one travels on the Sabbath in Israel, in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then he says, unless those days should be shortened. Uh, verse 21, first of all, says, there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, known or ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened or cut off, it's literally, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect says, those days shall be shortened. In other words, the great tribulation is going to be the most awful period of human history. And if Christ said if he didn't come at the end of it and stop it, there wouldn't be any human beings left in the world. He has a plan for a millennial kingdom that involves continued human occupation of the earth. And so the great tribulation is described here, and then he goes on to point out the signs of his coming, how there's going to be false reports about a Messiah coming secretly. And he says, don't believe it, uh, because when he comes, it's going to be a very public event. He says in verse 26, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not look out, or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, couldn't get anything more public than that, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That's a proverb that points out that where there is evil, there is judgment. And, of course, that's exactly what's going to happen. And then he talks about immediately after that day, there will be disturbances in the heaven, and Christ will come and uh, come back to the earth, coming in clouds of glory, uh, clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And uh, he'll send the, the angels with a great sound of a trumpet, 
And he'll gather together his elect from four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And the other gospels say from one end of the earth to the other. They're gathered in order to enter into the millennial kingdom. Now you notice something here. There is no resurrection. There is no rapture. He comes back from heaven to the earth to stay in the earth. Not to leave the earth and go to heaven, take the church with him. But to stay in the earth because that's where he's going to have his millennial kingdom. And so Matthew doesn't give anything about this. Now, the post-tribulationists, however, work over the verses that follow. Let me do this as quickly as I can. And he said, learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is... uh, has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Now, many Bible expositors explain that the fig tree is Israel. There's a question in my mind whether that's true. I've looked up uh, fig trees all through the Bible, and it's true that in Jeremiah, I think it's 24, that the good figs, are declared uh, the Israelites that are carried off into captivity because they retain their Jewish character. And the bad figs are the Samaritans that stay behind and intermarried with the heathen. And they distinguish it that way. But the fig tree itself, I have trouble with believing that that's Israel. Now, in the context here, when you have an illustration, the illustration should always fit into the context. And the context here is not talking about Israel. It's talking about the Great Tribulation. And that's brought out in the next few verses. Assuredly, I say it to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not by any means pass away. Now, what does he mean by that? This generation shall not pass. Well, there's been all sorts of speculation that it refers to the nation Israel. Again, there is no contextual support for it. What generation is he talking about in the context? What had the disciples asked for? They had asked for the sign of the second coming. What is the sign of the second coming? Why, the great tribulation. It's unmistakable. When that occurs, they'll all know on the basis of Scripture that three and a half years later, Christ is going to come. And so the same generation that sees the great tribulation will see the consummation, Christ's coming, as predicted here. Now, I believe in the restoration of Israel. There are other passages that teach that and in great detail, but it's not talking about that here. And it seems to me that's far preferable than trying to figure out the generation and make Israel as a nation meant by this, which it doesn't normally do. At least it's a possible explanation that I think is better than the other. And so it goes on here then, however, to say, but of the day and the hour, no one knows. There's always somebody trying to figure out the day. Not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Now, that's a strange thing. Christ says he doesn't know. Well, this is one of the strange situations in the Bible. You see, Christ is both human and divine. Now, in his divine nature, he can't increase in knowledge. But as a child, it said he increased in wisdom and stature. In his human nature, He was limited in his knowledge. And he says, I don't even know that in my human nature. Now, in his divine nature, he plainly says he knows all things. But then he goes on to say, it's going to be as in the days of Noah, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. 
so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. There, it's the rapture, isn't it? It says one's going to be taken and the other left. Your problem is that you've got, you've got an illustration here. It's talking about this being similar to the flood. Now, who is taken in the flood? Well, the person that was taken was taken in judgment. He's the one that drowned. One that wasn't taken was the one that was saved. Just the opposite of the rapture. And so there's no rapture here. This is not talking about the rapture. This is talking about the second coming. And there, just the reverse is true. The person that's left is left in the ark. Never get even wet. And the person who's outside the ark perishes. He's the one that's taken away. Now they try to get around this. They say there's a different word used. And they say it's always used in a friendly sense. Now check that out. It's amazing what scholars will do without using their concordance. And the same word is used when they took Christ to the cross. Always in a friendly sense? (laughs) Certainly not. And then in Luke chapter 17, we have the parallel passage where the same thing is spelled out. But there, the disciples ask the question, where are they taken? And Christ replies, that where the vultures are, where the bodies are, there the vultures will be gathered together. In other words, they're going to be put to death. And of course, that's confirmed in chapter 25 when the goats are purged out. So you see, there's no rapture in Matthew 24. I was in a conference one time where one of the speakers was extolling the pro-rapture issue. And, of course, he, along with all post-tribulations, tried to find it here somewhere in this 24th chapter. And it's simply not there because it hadn't been revealed yet. And in the question and answer hour, someone asked the pointed question, where is it in Matthew 24? Because he really hadn't indicated any verse. And he gave me an astounding answer. I wouldn't have believed it if it hadn't been there. He said, well, Christ told the disciples, but they didn't write it down. <laughs> well, if they didn't write it down, it's not in the passage. <laughs> you see, he had, a, in a sense, confessed it wasn't there. No, this passage doesn't teach a rapture at the time of the second coming. Now let's turn over to First Thessalonians once more. And we had there the day of the Lord. And it goes on to describe it as a time of darkness. And he said to the Christians, But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. And in verse 9 he says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment on the world following the rapture is not our appointment. And in effect, he's saying that the rapture is first. Now, the book of Joel makes it very plain that the day of the Lord's in the great tribulation, and of course it goes even before that, as the book of Revelation brings out. In other words, that is simply not true, that God's going to carry us through this period of wrath. Now, in Second Thessalonians, we have a very interesting sequel to this. It seems that during uh, the different time period between First and Second Thessalonians, that some false teachers came in, and the Thessalonians were suffering, and they said, you're suffering the persecutions of the day of the Lord. Well, this upset them, because Paul had taught them that the day of the Lord would follow the rapture. And the question was raised, had the rapture occurred and they'd missed it? Or was Paul wrong? And these false teachers claimed that Paul agreed with them, which he didn't. 
And Paul, when he heard this, was very, very angry. And he wrote Second Thessalonians. And the second chapter, he hits this head on. Now, we sometimes think that post-tribulation is a recent thing. It isn't. It goes right back here to Second Thessalonians. And so he writes them, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, you ask you, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord has come. You see, he's telling them, don't believe these false teachers who tell you the day of the Lord has come. Now, how does he know and how do they know? He said, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? What is he saying? He's saying the rapture has to occur before this man of sin can be revealed. Now, when was he revealed? Well, his full revelation, of course, comes at the middle of that seven years when he takes over the temple and sets himself up as an object of worship. But that's not where he appears. He appeared, first of all, three and a half years before when he made the covenant. And then he appeared before that when he became the ruler of the three and in all ten countries. In other words, his identity is revealed to a Bible student more than seven years before the second coming of Christ. The rapture has to occur first before he can be revealed. Well, in that case... It knocks out the post-trib view, all the views. It knocks out the mid-trib view, the partial rapture view. The only view that's tenable, that's left, is the pre-tribulation rapture view, that the rapture is first. And that's, of course, what this passage teaches. Now, there's further proof of this later on in the chapter. He says to them in verse 6, Now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do it until he be taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. He goes on to talk about him. Now, what is this restraint? Well, scholars, again, go round and round. But ultimately, the devil isn't going to restrain sin. And human government is wicked in that day. It's not going to restrain sin. The only real restraint of sin is the Holy Spirit. Now, where is the Holy Spirit in this dispensation? He's indwelling the church. In fact, God's number one method of retraining evil in the world is the influence of the Holy Spirit in the church. Now, we are a minority as far as this world is concerned, but we greatly affect the moral standards of the world, even though sometimes when people depart from their Christian faith, they wander in this respect. Now, the Holy Spirit cannot lift his restraint on sin while he's still in the church. So it's saying, in effect, he has to leave that position. Now, it says he's going to be taken out of the way. Now, you have to be careful there. What does that mean? It means he's going to be taken out of the way in the same sense that he came. When did he come? On the day of Pentecost. Prior to that, as Christ described in John 14, the Holy Spirit is with us to help us but not in us. And he predicted a time would come when the Holy Spirit would indwell us. And, of course, that occurred on the day of Pentecost. And for the first time in history, every true believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that continues to the time of the rapture. Now, when the rapture occurs, you go back to the situation that was before Pentecost. 
And in the great tribulation, there is no indwelling. There may be filling of some few, as there was in the Old Testament, but not a universal indwelling. There's no baptism of the Spirit. And there's no sealing of the Spirit. People are still born again. And that's what the Holy Spirit is still operating, just like He did before Pentecost. But the other things have ceased. And so we can't take away this restraint of sin unless the Holy Spirit is taken out, unless the church is taken out. So in effect, he's saying again, the rapture has to occur first. There's a great doctrine here. I wish I had time to elucidate on it, but I don't think the average Christian understands how God intervenes between them and Satan and restrains Satan from wrecking us. You know, there wouldn't be a one of us here tonight if Satan had his way. He doesn't want any Christian to prosper, to enjoy life, to have loved ones, to have money, to have standing, to have success. He's going to fight us every step of the way. And the book of Job is such a revealing book there. Here Job was having everything, and God calls attention to the fact that Job was so faithful to him. And Satan said, let me at him, I'll show you. And God said, well, you can take his family, but you can't touch him. And in one night he lost everything. All his children, grandchildren were killed. All his flocks were stolen. He was left penniless. And all he had left was a wife who told him to sin God and die. <laughs> Not much help to him. Apparently Satan left her because he could use her. <laughs> <laughs> and then God called attention to Satan. He said, now look, see, Job is still faithful. It's still worshiping me in spite of what you're doing. And, Job, and Satan said, let me at him. And God said, all right, you can afflict his body, but you can't kill him. And then he had the affliction, and of course, his three friends added to it. And at the end of the story, God restores to Daniel, uh, towards to uh, uh, him all, all that he ever had, Job. And uh, I wonder who bore all the children. He said he was going to duplicate his family. He must have had another wife. I don't think the wife that nagged him would have stood up all of that. But the point is that Satan can go no further than God permits. And I think we as Christians should pray every day for God's protection. You should pray for your leaders. I don't think you realize how anybody who is in a strategic place of leadership is under constant attack of Satan. That's why some of them fail. And we fail if we don't pray for them. We need God's protection, God's blessing. And that's certainly what the Bible teaches. But it also confirms here that the rapture is before these tremendous end-time events that relate to the world ruler. Now there's further proof. I wish, I don't want to worry you out on this, but we have a few more minutes. Let's turn to the book of Revelation. Now I understand you're studying that, and so you'll know a lot about this now or in the future. But you know in the book of Revelation, we have, first of all, in chapter 1, Christ revealed in His glory... And the statement made that he's going to come back to the earth. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we have John taken up to a vision of heaven, or he introduced to the scroll with the seven seals. And then in chapter 6, that scroll is unrolled, and each seal is unrolled, and it signifies a prophecy. first one has to do with world government. Now, a lot of very common Bible teachers teach this is the beginning of the seventh year. But uh, the world government, which is pictured in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6, pictures a man on a white horse, a victorious man, who has a bow but no arrow. And this world ruler wins without a war. That's what it means, and it happens in the middle of the week. So I take it from chapter 6 to chapter 18, the emphasis is on the, the last half of the seven years, the terrible time of trouble. 
And then it goes on to speak of a world war, of a lack of food, famine. And then we have the fourth sin. Now listen to this. Now you bear in mind that some of them teach that the rapture can't occur, it has to occur way later in Revelation, and that this is not wrath. Let's look what we read here. When he'd opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death. And Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. One-fourth of the world. Now, if the world's population at that time is five billion people... That would mean 1,250 people, 250 million. If you wiped out all of North America, all of Central America, and all of South America, you still wouldn't have that many people. I don't think it's going to be that way. I think it's going to be worldwide. But here in two verses, a devastating judgment. Is that the wrath of God? Of course it is. Who else would have the power to do that? Even Satan doesn't want to rule the world like that. They're his cronies for the most part. The believers are in the minority. It wouldn't be Satan that does it. Then it goes on to speak of the other seals, martyrs, the fifth seal, and then the disturbances in the heaven, the sixth seal. And then when the seventh seal sounds, we get a second series of sevens. And these are called trumpet judgments. And they're described for us in chapter uh, 8. Uh, and uh, when the trumpet judgments sound, it results, each trumpet signifies a judgment on a third of the earth. Uh, for instance, in the uh, first trumpet, you have the first angel sounding and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. They were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And then the second trumpet, the sea is struck, a third of it. And then uh, the water is struck, the third trumpet. And then the heavens are struck. It's always a third. And then the fifth one seems to talk about demon possession, pictured as locusts. And then the sixth trumpet describes the angels or demons that are in the Euphrates liver. And they're let loose. And uh, it tells us that these four angels or four demons, verse 16, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now that's chapter 9. Now, uh, if you have a fourth killed in the fourth seal, and this sixth trumpet kills a third of the remainder, where are you? You're down to 50%. And you don't take into consideration all the other trumpets where there's no mention of where, uh, how many people are killed. I take it that over half the world has already been killed. Is that the wrath of God? Is the church going to go through this period? Well, they tell us that God is able to keep the church through this period, is he? Of course. We have in chapter 7 a very interesting passage that doesn't advance the narrative. But it says that God appoints 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel as a special group that are sealed. Now, these are people who are Jewish in their background, who have become Christians, I take it, after the rapture, And now God puts a special preserving seal upon them because in chapter 14, at the end of the tribulation, they're still alive. And he shows his protective power. But then in verse 9, John is given a vision of heaven in this same chapter. And he sees a multitude which no man could number of every kindred tongue and people. And the question is raised, who are these? 
And the answer is, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. These are Christians that perished after the rapture, but in this great tribulation. Did God protect them? No. You see, most Christians who come to Christ in the great tribulation will be killed before they reach the end. It's only a few, the remnant, that are going to survive the whole period. And so it simply isn't true that the church is going to go through this period unscathed. In fact, as I pointed out, most of them will be killed. Now imagine Paul going to the Thessalonian church and saying, Now you're saved by the death and resurrection of Christ, but cheer up. Christ is coming for you, but look out. There's going to be a great tribulation first. And nine out of ten of you are going to perish, but blessed hope, those who survive will be raptured. What are you laughing for? It doesn't make any sense, does it? The blessed hope is not survival of martyrdom. The blessed hope is that Christ could come at any time, as Titus mentions. And then, of course, we have the so-called judgments, the bull judgments, and uh, in chapter 15 and 16 and following, and the the pre-wrath people try to get the rapture in there, but, of course, there's no rapture mentioned. And they try to hold that all the preceding chapters have no wrath of God. Well, what did we read? If most of the world has been destroyed by this time, certainly that's the wrath of God. And so it's not true that there's no wrath of God. But you see, the bold judgments are so terrible that even the post-tribulationists haven't been able to cope with that. And it goes on to say how these bold judgments are poured out, and the figure is a full bowl that's torn upside down and poured on the earth. And the first one brings loathsome sores. And the second one, the sea turns the blood. Now, there are a lot alike, the trumpet judgments. But the difference is the trumpet judgments affected a third, whereas this is a worldwide disaster. And if the sea is turned to blood, it kills everything in the sea. It disrupts uh, uh, transportation, of course. And, of course, we have to have transportation or there's worldwide famine. It's a terrible disruption of the world. And the waters are turned to blood. And then in the fourth bowl, climate sages and men are scorched with heat. And there follows darkness and pain. Uh, The heavens are being disturbed. And then finally, the Euphrates River is dried up earlier. Uh, You remember in the the sixth uh, trumpet, it speaks of the Euphrates River uh, being dried up. And, of course, what it is is a preparation for the armies of the, the 200 million of the east crossing the Euphrates River and descending to the land of Israel to participate in that last final battle of Armageddon. And uh, I thought that possibly they'd take an earthquake or something, but talked to an army engineer about this. He said, well, there's a whole bunch of dams which the Soviet Union has built across the Euphrates River, and there are times when it's absolutely dry because they diverted all the water for irrigation purposes. So they don't even have to have a special miracle to get this accomplished. And then the seventh bowl is part out, and this is just beyond understanding. It says there was a great earthquake, verse 18. Such a mighty and great earthquake, such as had not occurred since men were on earth. And the great city was divided into three parts. I personally think that's Babylon, though some people think it's something else. And the cities of the nations, the cities of the Gentiles fell. This great earthquake literally shakes apart the whole world with the exception of Israel, apparently. It's the cities of the Gentiles. Great Babylon is remembered before God to give 
her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Of course, that's chapter 18, where it describes it in detail. Every island fled away. What's going to happen to Manhattan and many other islands? And mountains were not found. If you were writing a work of fiction and trying to write a horror scene, I defy you to do anything worse than this. This is awful. This thing of the millions, the hundreds of millions of people that are going to perish in this final earthquake. And then on top of that, it says, A great hail from heaven fell upon men, and each hailstone fell was about the weight of a talent. A talent was a hundred pounds. Now, in spite of all these evidences of God's power, it goes on to say that men blaspheme God because of these judgments. The heart of man is irreparably wicked. I was asked to participate one time in four views of hell. It's on the book table. And I was supposed to give the orthodox view that hell is forever, and which I did. But it's a hard truth that unsaved people go to hell forever. You know why? Because they never change. Hell doesn't teach anybody anything. They don't get any better. It's not redemptive. And even Satan, who's cast in the, in the tomb for a thousand years before he's cast in the lake of fire, comes out, he's just as bad as when he entered. No, wickedness of man apart from the grace of God is just beyond estimation. And so this is the final great destruction. Now, do you think the church can go through this period unsaved? It simply isn't what the Bible teaches. And the very fact that in every passage in the rapture it's viewed as an imminent event, we're never once warned. In contrast to the passage in the second coming where all these events are described. But the rapture has never a preceding event predicted. And therefore I believe that the rapture of the church could be any time. Now if we're right in saying the thing, uh, there's so much more could be said about this. I believe that Europe is ripe for the uh, revival of the Roman Empire for the first time in history. The major nations of Europe are not fighting each other. And they're talking about the United States of Europe, a common currency and a common government, and they're ready to have brought a lot of the barriers between the nations down. Just a question of time. Even the secular press says it's just a matter of time till there is the United States of Europe. And that's exactly, of course, what the Bible predicts for the end of the age. And then, of course, the end prophecies always picture Israel in Israel in Jerusalem, the Jews in the land of Israel. And they're pictured there as unbelievers, not as Christians. They're going to be thrust out again, according to Matthew 24, as we read, verse 15 and following. And when Christ comes, he's going to regather Israel, according to Ezekiel 20. But he's going to purge out all the unbelievers. The Israel that repossesses their promised land are going to be Christian Jews, people who are believers in Jesus Christ. And according to Ezekiel 48 and other passages, they're going to divide the land of Israel into 12 divisions for the 12 tribes. It tells us where each tribe is going to be located with the boundaries. That's all part of the second coming of Christ and God's plan. So Israel's there. Then we have, of course, predicted world government. We have United Nations. Now the United Nations is a weak instrument, but it's teaching that the way for world peace is through world government. And a lot of people are buying that. It's much better than atomic or nuclear war may not work, and it doesn't, but it's preparing people to accept a world ruler when he comes as the way out of our trouble and the avoidance of nuclear warfare, which it probably isn't going to avoid. 
And then there's, of course, the World Church Movement, which began in 1948. And the harlot in chapter 17 of Revelation pictures the World Church as a harlot, as a wicked woman astride this scarlet-colored beast that represents the ten nations. And they're working together for domination of the world. But the woman is destroyed by the ten nations at the beginning of the Great Tribulation so that the entire world will worship the world ruler without even the woman of false church being in the way. We're living in tremendous days. Are you ready for the coming of Christ? There's a number of questions that could be raised immediately. First of all, are you saved? You know, I get into churches that are evangelical churches. Somehow the others don't want me, but... I might say the wrong thing for them, from their point of view. But uh, even in evangelical churches, I find there's always some. They're going through the motions. They may look like Christians. They may act like Christians. But they have never been born again. And having gone through that myself for many years before I discovered I was lost and needed to be saved, I can understand that. But if the rapture occurs, they're going to be left behind. If the rapture occurred tonight, right now, would you still be sitting in the pew and all the Christians are gone? It's going to happen for some people. If you're not saved by faith in Christ and you've not been born again, you're not ready for the coming of Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, there's a second thing you have to face. The matter of your life and accountability. What are you doing for God? What's your testimony? Are you living in the light of his will for your life? Are you a faithful steward, a faithful prayer warrior? Are you doing what you can to bring people to Christ? These are important issues, and they suddenly become very important if Christ is going to come soon. What would you do if I was able to tell you for sure that Christ is coming one month from now? Well, it would be a very striking thing, wouldn't you? There's been people that thought they knew, and they'd give up their property and even kill their pets and didn't want them to survive and give away their property and quit their jobs. We don't know when. And I don't like dates because I always think they could be wrong. The rapture could occur before the dates, you know. <laughs> and it's going to happen one of these days. Are you ready? That's the bottom line in prophecy. Not all these details... But are you ready? Because Christ is coming and prepare to meet your God. Now, if you have any trouble, see one of us, church staff here and myself. We'd just love to help you if you're struggling. You know, I accepted the gospel the instant I understood it. I never could understand why anybody could hesitate to receive the wonderful gift of eternal life through faith in Christ, even for a second. What is there more precious than that, more wonderful than that? Now is the time to accept Christ, not tomorrow, because I can't promise anything for tomorrow. I can promise that tonight, if you trust in Christ, let him come in and take your life and give you eternal life. You can be born again and be safe and ready for the Lord's return. Shall we pray? Our Father, how grateful we are for your wonderful blessings. And while we spent a long time in this great subject, we pray that thou just help us to understand it and to have a keen anticipation of the Lord's coming for us. Now guide us as we go into the question and answer hour and 
and bless us as we share this occasion and, uh, and help us to understand this somewhat difficult and tricky topic. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for just a moment. The nursery workers are watching your children for another 15 minutes. So if you have kids, but you still want to ask a question, I think we should let those with children uh, first, because in 15 minutes it will be time for you to go get your children, and uh, then we'll take some more questions. So if you want to ask a question, I'm going to ask that you'll come. Uh, I'm not going to wander with this mic because we'll get feedback. So if you want to ask a question, uh, the doctor is in, and now is the time to ask uh, some of the questions if you're questioning about this topic uh, now's the time so just come right up here and uh, I'll take your questions one by one as far as I understand um, I'm curious as to whether the United States is in the end time prophecies and where, where they are as far as world power I mean, right now they're, we're the most powerful nation in the world. How come I don't see them as far as um, battling at all? God has blessed America for two reasons. God told Abram he would bless those who blessed him and his posterity. And America has been kind to the Jew, and I think God has blessed America for it. The second thing is, is God's purpose to get out the gospel. And 75% of the personnel and the money for a missionary project has come from the United States. Now, when the rapture occurs, that's all going to end immediately. No more Christian missions, no more Christian churches left, no missionary activity, and the whole world will go anti-Semitic. And there's not a reason in the world why God shouldn't judge America for its sins. Now, there's another reason, of course. We're in the wrong hemisphere. The Bible pictures everything as related to Israel and Jerusalem, and we're on the opposite side of the globe as far as I know, the Bible never mentions North America, Central America, or South America. Okay. Thank you. I was wondering where you uh, believe that maybe AIDS comes into the fact of uh, the last days. Say your question again, please. I was wondering how AIDS, if uh, you believe that AIDS is part of end-time prophecy and how that fits in. or The AIDS, the AIDS virus. The AIDS virus. The, AIDS oh, epidemic. the Bible doesn't discuss it, except that it does say that things will get worse and worse, and I think that that's part of our present world. But it doesn't mention AIDS directly. I don't think. Maybe some people can find a verse that fits. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, the Bible states that the man is denied the day and the hour of the return of Jesus Christ. It never states that the year is denied. In the Bible, the number seven and the number three is quoted many times in association with Jesus Christ. Is it possible that the second return of Jesus Christ will be in the year 2003? He died at 3 o'clock. He rose from the grave on the third day. He will return three times. There was three crosses of the crucifixion. Jesus was one of them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Is three associated with the return of Jesus Christ. I believe the year 2003. Am I wrong? The Bible never mentions the year 2000, so you don't have a point of reference. But I think it is possible that a Christian in the Great Tribulation will understand that the second coming of Christ occurs seven years after the covenant sign. But uh, it doesn't say they won't know the year. It says they won't know the day or the hour. 
And on any given day, you know, half the world is in one day and half the world is in another day. So it's rather difficult to figure it out. And I don't think you can figure out the day, but I think they can figure out the proximate time. How much they will understand this, I don't know. Certainly the world won't understand it, and how much Christians living at that time will understand it. The Bible never comments on it. But are you, is your reference to the rapture of the church? He's talking the second coming of the church. I'm talking about the second coming, and uh, we as Americans go by one calendar. The Jewish people and Hebrews go by a Hebrew calendar, which has different dates and different years. Now, I believe that if Jesus Christ is going to come, he's going to come by the Hebrew calendar, not by the calendar that Americans follow and possibly the rest of the world follows. It's the Hebrew timing is what Jesus follows. Well, we're not following, and the Bible doesn't follow any calendar. It's not a matter of calendar. We don't know how long the present age is going to be as far as the rapture is concerned. Now, I pointed out that there is this seven-year period leading up to the second coming, and that seven-year period is a literal period. And I take it it's prophetic years of 360 days, as the Bible uses the term. And I take it that's going to be it, 42 months. But uh, I don't think that uh, that that's twice 42 months. I don't think that that's something that we can know because the Bible doesn't mention it. But it's no problem of us. We're not going to be here. We're going to be up in heaven. I like to reduce our problems to problems that are our problems. Thank you. In, in basic writing, there's a chronology, there's a series of thought that goes in a chronological order. Now, it, as I'm reading some of the scriptures that you alluded to, particularly in Revelation 16 and uh, the troubles and trials and things that are happening, the word thief is used, thief as in verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15, it says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. But that's after the chronology, the chronological order of all the things that you mentioned, of all the trials and, and troubles and the horrible things that are going to come. But it isn't until after those things that all of a sudden that verse comes up in verse 15. I am coming as a thief. And then going back to Matthew chapter 24, the chronological order of events again, after all these things will happen, it says, and and, and in that, it has the words, it refers to you, meaning whoever you is, whoever the gospel writer is speaking to, would seemingly be the Christians. And then after that, it says, they they will something or rather, but it seems like there's a series of events of the chronological order that it's you and they in those series. Could you please allude to some of that? And I, it, well, in First Thessalonians 5, we have that contrast, you and they. But I don't think this matter of the thief is a complicated thing. As far as the world is concerned, they don't know when he's coming. Now, a Christian knows that the Lord's coming. We still don't know the time. And the second coming, they may know the approximate time, but they won't know the day or the hour. So uh, the thief doesn't leave a calling card and saying, I'm going to return to such a time. So both the second coming and the rapture have this uh, idea that the world is totally unprepared for it, not expecting it. And that's what it means. And I don't accept a more complicated view of it than that. Okay. 
Thank you. I was kind of curious where you might place the active ministry of the two olive trees spoken of in Revelation chapter 11. Where would you place their active ministry, the 12,000 or 1,260 days that it refers to there? What uh, passage are you talking about? Uh, in the, the two witnesses, Revelation 11. 11. What do you want to know? Where, where you might put them on a time I take frame. it that it's the second half. It's, it's a real debate as to whether it's in the first half of the seven years or the second half. But I think the first half, it wouldn't be difficult for them. The second half, it will be very difficult. They need divine protection. And they do, they do have it until God allows them to be killed, and then they're resurrected. And I think that takes place just before the second coming. Thank you. Uh, good evening. As far as tonight, I pray there was a harvest taken in tonight. But when was the harvest, you know, the signs that uh, the church is out ministering, that they're gathering more people, there's going to be a tremendous push that I believe is before the rapture of the church. But are we going to see signs of that harvest, and what will they be? Well, personally, I don't think the church, that the sign rapture has any signs at all. That's the contrast with the second coming. What we're seeing today is what uh, was brought out last evening, that it's like uh, Christmas being preparations for it. If you know that, then Thanksgiving is near. What we're seeing in our world today is, is precise preparation for the events that follow the rapture. Now, if that's the case and the rapture is first, as I've indicated, then the rapture could be very near. But it doesn't give us a chance for dates. It doesn't uh, pin it down so that we know it's going to happen this week or next month. But it does mean that there's evidence in the last 50 years there's been more of this preparation for the end time than happened in the preceding thousand years. It's really amazing. In my lifetime, I've seen Israel go back to the land, the United Nations formed, the World Church formed. All that has happened since World War II. And all of these are major signs. And then Europe being at peace and the United Nations, the, I mean the United States of Europe being a possibility. And again, that's always related to the rapture, though it isn't clear whether it's just before or just after. So all these things point to the fact that the stage is set. And all we're waiting for is that trumpet call that will take us out of the world and the thing's going to grind on to its pattern of fulfilled prophecy. Sir, in in, uh, Revelation 17, it says, I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast. Is this scarlet scarlet beast the Antichrist? I take it that the woman is the apostate church, and the beast is the ten-nation group, and they're working together to conquer the world. And, of course, that goes on through the first half of that seven years. When you get to the midpoint, then the ten nations, according to Revelation 17, turn on the woman and kill her and burn her with fire. They destroy the world church because they want all worship to worship Satan and worship the world ruler. And there's not a semblance of Christianity left to it, even apostate Christianity. So that's what it's talking about. In verse 8 it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Well, the beast, of course, is the world, is the world government of the end time. And uh, it's satanic, and that's why it comes out of the bottomless pit. And it, it says that uh, uh, 
the various heads of the Roman Empire in the past, and we finally come to the final head, which is going to be the world ruler, and that's what it's describing in this chapter. And uh, uh, I don't know as we can go much beyond that, but it's talking about the world government and the world religion, and those are the two main elements, and, of course, they both are supported by Satan, so they're satanic, and therefore in their genius, in their philosophy, in their uh, elements, uh, all come out of the bottomless pit. I thought maybe it meant that the Antichrist will be a person that was once alive and possibly in hell today, and he would he would come out of hell and he would rule. That would be the beast. I mean, by well, that, that theory has, uh, of course, been commonly held by many. In chapter 13, it says that the beast has a deadly wound, but that it's healed. Now, our problem is that only Christ can raise somebody from the dead. Satan can't do that. And I take it it wouldn't be fitting for Christ to raise a man to be the Antichrist. That doesn't make any sense to me. But it is possible that the future world ruler will have an assassination attempt and get a wound that normally would kill him. And Satan has the magic power to heal. And he's healed, and that's what it tells us in Revelation 13. And the whole world wonders at the beast. You see, he comes on the scene as a man with supernatural powers and supernatural experience. And the world is going to accept him. That's why he can demand they worship him as God later on. And so that's what it's talking about here. And I take it's just another reference to what we have in chapter 13. Thank you. Yes, sir. As far as the pre-trib theory is concerned, I base it on Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. This is the NIV. Since you have kept my commandment, endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Am I right? I take it that that prediction is possible for the pre-trib view. It wouldn't be possible for the other. But it's addressed to a church that is now gone. And the question is whether that represents the entire church, the body of Christ. I think it's an argument in favor of pre-trib, but I don't think it's complete. And for that reason, I don't... uh, use it a great deal. I should have mentioned when I talked about this the two other great evidences that in Revelation 20, when the martyred dead are raised several days after the second coming, it's proof that the rapture didn't occur because they would have been raised. And it's also true for the judgment of the nations. The sheep and the goats are gathered several days after the second coming, and they wouldn't be intermingled if the rapture had occurred at the second coming or before because the sheep would have been taken out. So all of these prove that there's no rapture and no resurrection on the day of the second coming. There is a resurrection of the Old Testament saints and the martyr dead of the tribulation several days after the second coming. Do you believe the rapture is in chapter 4? Chapter what? Chapter 4. I think it illustrates it, but I don't like to prove something on the basis of an illustration. John is caught up to heaven, and uh, there are those that take this as a sign of the rapture. It's in harmony with it. But it, I don't think it really proves it. Okay. Thank you for um, I've heard in the past that um, Christ isn't coming back until everyone hears about his message. I was just wondering if that's true or not. He's coming back to do what? Until, uh, he won't come back until the world has heard the gospel message. Well, in that case, he's never coming back because I don't think he ever accomplished that. In Dallas, we had a, a campus crusade put on a big deal there, it had 80,000 young people, 
and some years back, and they went to every home in Dallas to either give their personal testimony or to leave a tract. And uh, they did that. Of course, some people weren't home. But I'm satisfied there's thousands of people in Dallas that haven't heard the gospel. It's utterly impossible to reach every individual. You can reach all nations, but to reach all individuals, I think, is just an impossibility. My question has two parts, actually. Um, I think a lot, a lot of people here are interested in, like, the timeline, which is, a couple questions have come out. Uh, like, the temple, are we going to see it before the Is it the rapture before that? Does it take place after? And second part would be, I've always understood the false prophet was going to be, like, the false prophet and the Antichrist are two different people, and they collaborate together. I mean, that's, I mean, there's a pamphlet he actually can pick up here that talks about that, and you fail to mention the false prophet, and I was just wondering the role of what he would play. Well, as far as the temple is concerned, the Bible doesn't say. It'll be in existence at the midpoint of the last seven years, because that's when the sacrifices stop. When you can't stop something that hasn't started, there's no sacrifices now, and they have to build a temple because there isn't any temple. So this will take place. I think there's enough time between the rapture and the beginning of the seven years to get all that done. And uh, in any case, by the midpoint of the seven years, it will be done. But when, the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't even say where. We assume it's in Jerusalem there, but the Bible doesn't say. I didn't get your, uh, I didn't understand the The second second question. The second question was regarding the false prophet and his role with the Antichrist. Well, he's an assistant to him. And we have what we call the false trinity, that Satan corresponds to God the Father, and the world ruler corresponds to Jesus Christ as King of Kings, and the false prophet is like the Holy Spirit that causes people to worship Christ and Satan, or true God and uh, the world ruler. And so uh, uh, I take it that's what it's talking about. But I take it he's an ordinary man with supernatural satanic power, and he and the false, he and the world ruler are, are alike cast into the lake of fire at the time of the second coming. Uh, yes. Uh, after last night, I, uh, when Chuck Missler was talking, he was talking about the reestablishing of the literal geographical Babylon. Uh, so I went home and started doing a study on Babylon. And uh, I came across a passage in Zechariah 5, 5, which talks about this woman wickedness in a basket that's carried to the land of Shinar, so it definitely is a geographical location. So I was just wondering if you had any insight on who the woman is and if, if it has anything to do with the last days. part of the imagery there. I think uh, Chuck Misner mentioned that last evening, that particular passage, and said that it, it supported the idea of a literal Babylon. But our major proof is, uh, I think, Revelation chapter 18. Here it describes a great city called Babylon that's destroyed, but you can't destroy something that hasn't been created. And I'm inclined to believe, as Chuck does, that it becomes the world empire capital of the world government in the last three and a half years before the second coming. And as such, it will be rapidly built up and become a commercial city. But I could be wrong. Again, as I reminded you before, I'm not going to be here, so I'm not going to worry about it. Thank you.
Uh, well, that, I, I'd always kind of held that view, too, about the commercial Babylon being Revelation 18. But when I came across this last night, just if you had any insight on the woman, when I read about her name being wicked and taken back to the land of Shinar, of course, where the Tower of Babel was, I was just wondering if possibly that was that woman when the beast turns around and destroys her, if she's picked up and taken back there. Or am I just totally on the wrong track? Well, the nation, the Babylon is still in existence today. The city has not been destroyed and the religion has not been destroyed. So both of them are subject to future fulfillment regardless of what it says in Zechariah. Thank you. Hi. Uh, this question mainly deals with um, after the uh, rapture. What I noticed, um, it's good to believe the uh, big lie. And um, I've seen a lot of Christians mixed up on this. And even Chuck Missler mentioned something about aliens and the, cuss, the world is just believing in strange, strange things, which I wouldn't even believe they would believe in. And my question is, if right after the rapture occurs, even though we'll be gone, I've seen these like rapture movies where you see this guy shaving his whiskers, and then the wife comes and sees the little shaver buzzed there, and he's totally gone. And a lot of people say, well, well we'll be gone. But when people die in the graves and... They're also going to be raptured. But my question is, will the whole body be gone? Or will just inside of us the spirit, because it says uh, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, but our spirits will. And what I'm curious is, if our flesh is left behind, let's say someone's driving at the wheel and they just drop dead, I can see how scared, because I realized the world will believe a lie a lot easier than if the whole body was gone. I'm not sure I got all your questions, but I take it the resurrection is a real resurrection. It takes the place of the old body. The rapture, our present bodies will be replaced. We're not going to leave our old bodies around. Now, it's possible we'll leave our clothes behind. The Bible doesn't say we're going to get different kind of clothes in heaven. Some of us may need it. (laughs) But uh, uh, the point is that the bodies will be completely replaced. Christ's body, when he rose from the dead, there was nothing left of his body in the tomb. So I take it there's a complete absorption of the body in the new resurrection body. But there's a lot of things like this we only partially understand, but I I find quite easy to trust the Lord. He's going to do a good job. Um, The main thing is, um, in rapture, though, will will be totally gone, or will the body still be behind? That's what I want, what I'm asking. He said the body will be gone. In his view, the body will be taken completely. That's your view, is that the yeah. body will be completely... And if the rapture occurred, we'd go right through the ceiling and be gone. No matter how strong the ceiling is. Uh, Christ left the tomb before the stone was rolled away, I believe. And that night he entered the room with the door up, not opening. Now, how much like that we will have, I don't know. But we're dealing with supernatural things, and so you have to realize that God can do anything he wants to do. So when the rapture occurs, we're going to go to heaven. I think it's instantaneous. I don't think... It's sort of like Paul was on the road to Damascus, you know. And he heard, he saw Christ and heard Christ. It says the rest just heard sort of a clap of thunder. They didn't hear anything else. So I take it at the rapture, there may be just a clap of thunder or something. And then the church is going to be gone. It's going to be very amazing. I think a lot of people are going to come to Christ after the rapture. Imagine a man talking to his secretary and she suddenly disappears, or vice versa. <laughs> you see what I mean? It's going to be very dramatic. 
And I take it that's going to be a striking thing, and many will probably come to Christ after the rapture, but they won't see it. They'll just see the results. We have time for one more question, and then we can take them afterwards privately. Okay, I have a question. I was at a Bible prophecy conference last month where Grant Jeffries spoke and Chuck Messler and Hal Lindsey, and they had a question and answer period, and unfortunately it was over a live radio broadcast, and I was way too nervous to ask my question, so I'm glad you're here and I can ask it. Hal Lindsey quotes in a book, um, the Bible, that the verse that says that in 1948 when the um, Jewish um, nation of Israel was restored, that that same generation that sees um, Israel restored into a nation would be the same generation that sees Christ come again. And in Hal Lindsey's book, he quotes that in his um, view at the time that the um, generation mentioned in the Bible was a period of 40 years, which would have put us at 1988. So I had, my question was, what, what does the Bible mean by a generation, the generation, and what is the time period? Well, I explained that earlier this evening in Matthew 24, it says, this generation shall not pass till all these things pass away. He's talking about the generation that's going to see the great tribulation. Now, a generation is a time from a person's born until he produces a son or daughter, a man or woman. In other words, it's the time from their birth till they reproduce. That's a generation. And it could be 20 years, it could be 50 years, it could be 75 years. You see what I mean? It's not a specific period of time. But obviously, it's longer than three and a half years. So the same generation that sees the Great Tribulation is going to see the second coming of Christ. And that's all it means. And I think that's a simple explanation. It's far better than all the other substitutes. And as a PS, this was carried live on the radio as well. But you didn't know that, so that's all right.